Today I'm speaking with Matt Taibbi. Matt is a writer for Rolling Stone magazine, and he was the winner of the 2008 National Magazine Award for columns and commentary. He has written many books, including the New York Times bestsellers The Great Derangement, Griftopia, and The Divide. And in this episode, we focus on the state of journalism and the vacuousness and polarization of our politics. We discuss the controversy over inviting Steve Bannon and then disinviting him to the New Yorker Festival. Uh, we talk about monetizing the Trump phenomenon, uh, the Jamal Khashoggi murder, the Kavanaugh hearing, the Rolling Stone reporting on the UVA rape case, the viability of the political center, the 2020 presidential election, the Russia investigation, our vanishing attention span, and many other topics. Anyway, many of you have requested that I get Matt on the podcast. Please enjoy my conversation with Matt Taibbi. I am here with Matt Taibbi. Matt, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So uh, we haven't met, but I've been a fan of your work for, for quite some time, and uh, no doubt we have friends in common. So mm-hmm. uh, we haven't figured that out yet, but I'm sure we're, we're in some similar orbit of some uh, large and dangerous object now. <laughs> Definitely. So how would you, uh, people will be fairly familiar with you, I think, but how, how do you describe your interests as a journalist? Um, I would say I'm an investigative journalist. Um, usually I'm also, I mean, I also do commentary, obviously. I, I kind of, my specialty over the years has been the sort of deep dive into an arcane subject, um, specifically after the financial services uh, crash of 2008. I did a lot of stories about how the how Wall Street works and basically translating all of that for ordinary readers. And um, and I'm a humorist, kind of an absurdist. I take an absurdist point of view on things as, as often as I can. And uh, yeah, that's I think people would probably classify me as like, you know, on the left, but I, I don't really think of myself that way. I, I, I am sort of more of a, um, a writer than I am, a, you know, a, a polemicist, I guess. Yeah, I, I've, I want to touch the financial crisis at some point, but let's just start with the, the current state of journalism and its health or, or state of disease. You have an interesting perspective on this because you actually grew up in a journalistic family, mm-hmm. right? Wasn't yeah, your my dad father a was a TV reporter. He uh, started in the business when he was 17. Um, he was a student at Rutgers University. And when I was born, he started working very, very early um, and became a television reporter in his early 20s in Boston. And so my, early, my, my, ch- my childhood was actually a lot like the movie Anchorman. Uh, I spent a lot mm-hmm. of time around those goofy 70s affiliates uh and my dad was was sort of one of those characters he had the bad facial hair and he was in big big collar yeah big collar shirts funny ties and he had mutton chops and uh all that cool stuff but I, i grew up around the business my earliest memories are all are all journalists my father's my my family's friends were all reporters so this is it's been my life since i was probably three or four years old i would say and so I have a I have a, wow. a perspective on it that's it's not totally unique, but it's been it's a big part of my life, sort of watching the changes in the business. Yeah, I, I want to talk about 
how it has changed and and maybe changing just by the hour now because we have this this is kind of this horrible integration that we've all witnessed of journalism and social media and politics that the politics side you know since Trump just seems unrecognizable to many of us so i'm just wondering the thing that many of us are trying to get a handle on here is how we can have a sane discussion about facts and values about what's actually going on in the world and what we should do about it when our epistemology appears to have been shattered by partisan politics and new technologies and new perverse incentives in media. We just appear to be driving ourselves crazy. How do you view it as, as somebody who's, who at least has some distant memory of pre-internet journalism and, and uh, who's now working as a, a journalist full-time? Yeah, I'm actually writing a book about this right now. And it's called The Fairway. It's sort of like a rethink of manufacturing consent. And it's a lot about um, mm -hmm. what's gone on in the last three or four decades with the business. And I think you hit on a really important word when you talked about incentives. The financial incentives in our business have really gone haywire. And with the collision of the internet and this, this business, we're now more or less all completely you know at the at the upper levels of the media and the big corporate outlets we're basically in the business of telling our our audiences what they want to hear and there there's a a, a very uh, a driving pressure on journalists to make audiences happy in a way that didn't exist probably a generation ago almost everybody now almost all journalists have a social media presence they're all whether they do so in their day job or not, they're op-ed writers to, to a degree. And this is really filtered into the way we cover everything. And it's gotten dramatically worse since Trump arrived because he's such a polarizing figure that now there's really only two kinds of media in, in big media. There's, there's pro-Trump pro media and there's, there's anti-Trump media. And we, we basically market those two brands. And it's, it's it's very difficult to write about anything else. I mean, my, I've had I've really struggled with it because in, in my career, uh, I, I really did a lot of things that were not about partisan politics, that were about bipartisan issues, that were, or things that had bipartisan causes, like the financial crisis uh, or military contracting or whatever it is. Um, but you can't do that today. It's just it's it's very hard to market uh, your work if you don't have an overt Trump angle on it. And that's, um, as you say, it's becoming more and more pronounced, I think, by the minute. And that's, that's difficult. It's hard not to be part of the problem in the act of responding to the problem, however constructively you think you're doing that. Because it is, there's something so demeaning about what is now normal. I mean, just to be you know, covering Trump all the time, I mean, just politically, journalistically, on social media, the, the, the status quo is so eclipsing of deeper possibilities, and, and it's just so magnifying of what's petty and, and superficial. And yet, to try to make sense of it or improve it is to be dragged into the same swamp. And it's like, it, it reminds me of the fears many people had of the Large Hadron Collider, that it was a fear that some future high-energy experiment in physics might 
rip a hole in the fabric of space-time and, and destroy the world. Like, it just might open up a, a mini black hole that would swallow everything. Right, or, or a nuclear explosion would ignite the atmosphere or something like that, right? Right, right. And I mean, however physically plausible those fears have been at any point, I actually feel something similar every time I turn on the news. What I'm afraid of and responding to is, is not the threat of nuclear war or cyber terrorism or climate change or any you know, real problem. It's this high energy experiment of our own banality and childishness in the face of these real challenges that eclipses any prospect of thinking about these challenges intelligently. I mean, like, like yesterday, we're, you know, we're recording this a day after we had Kanye West and, and Trump in the Oval Office, right. you know, where Trump got to look like the sane one for you know, minutes at a stretch. <laughs> and it's just, we're at this moment where human history is an episode of reality television. And it's, it's so appalling. And yet to even talk about it is to be, in some ways, just participating in this circus. It's very hard to see how, as a journalist, you thread this needle where you, again, you're, you have to choose how much time to spend on this freak show, which is the place that is either determining the course of human events or just preventing us from dealing with problems that are just, are just not going to go away on their own magically. I spent a lot of time sort of warning about this in the last 12 years. One of the things that I do. Um, a lot of them uh, at Rolling Stone, uh, they have me covering the campaigns every four years. So I'm now going to start my fifth in a few few months, uh, unfortunately. Um, you're, start, you're starting this early. Yeah, no, of course. That's one of the one of yeah. the problems is that yeah. it, it starts earlier and earlier each each cycle. Uh, but I but I've been saying for a couple of election cycles now that we were turning the um, electoral process into a reality show. And we were making it more and more vacuous uh, with each progressive cycle. And the, the media was sort of um, celebrating its role as essentially judges in a kind of beauty pageant. Uh, you know, we had all these terms and code words that we used to identify people who we thought were appropriate presidential candidates. So uh, if, if you saw somebody described as pointed, uh, in a campaign story, that was a that was a bad sign. That was the press's way of saying that this person um, is going to be offensive or difficult for Middle America to swallow. If we used the word nuance, that was a good word. Uh, you know, of course, there was the whole contest over who, which candidate we you most want to have a beer with. Um, you know, we invented all of these little ridiculous kind of. Um, reality shows sort of events, which one's the most tough on defense, which one is the most, uh, is the warmest. And the vacuousness of it, I think um, uh, people started to rebel against it. I, I started to notice, I think, in the Romney-Obama election that people were just really impatient with that kind of coverage. And when Trump came along, I, I recognized right away that this was going to be a problem because he was in a way the 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 campaign was a bad reality show with bad actors and here was a an experienced reality tv performer who was going to come in and make a, a complete circus out of it and the problem i knew i knew from the very start 
that the problem was going to be that the commercial press was not going to be able to resist um, that narrative. And I wrote about this from the start that that Trump was perfectly designed to walk through the front door of a process that had already been deeply flawed before he even got in the scene. And that's exactly what happened. Um, you know, I, I lost a little bit of faith uh, throughout the course of the election that, you know, I initially thought that he had, that he was going to win against all odds. But then, uh, you know, I, I lost a little bit of confidence in that. I didn't want him to win, of course. Um, but um, but I saw right away that, that that he was going to fit like a glove into what we'd created. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I've been thinking of him and talking about him as an evil Chauncey Gardner. Right. Exactly. Where, I mean, rather than, you know, based on his own talents and, and genius and strategy and vision, he was the perfect person to exploit a very flawed system and situation where his own personal flaws, his narcissism, his crassness, everything that's wrong with him as a, as a human fit like a you know, perfect key into the lock of the present moment. Maybe I'm not giving him quite as much credit as I, as I should be for being a, a talented demagogue, but I really do think that just being the, the right ugly character at the right moment explains a lot of his success. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he, and I've talked about this actually, oddly enough, with pro wrestlers, um, because one of the first things I, I noticed in the last election was Trump was basically doing a heel act. If you, if you watch any wrestling, he was casting all of his opponents um, as the baby face, you know, the, the good guy. And if you watch any WWE, you know, the audience is always cheer when the, the, the sort of gorgeous George character gets a chair across the face. And that's what Trump did with people like Jeb Bush. He made them, offended he attacked their families their mothers their wives and they they didn't know how to handle it and responded a, you know in many ways as as just basically any sane person would sort of acting upset and um outraged but that but trump made a mockery of it and he understood that the the spectacle was more important than what he was actually the actual words that he was saying and the cameras would would be drawn more to him than they would be to his opponents. And that's, A, why he got so much more coverage than everybody else would be. If you watch the debates, especially on the, the Republican side early on, he just sort of looked physically bigger than everybody else on the stage because he just had such a dominating media, pre media presence. Um, and he knew exactly how to control that WWE dynamic uh, in each of these events. And he did it with us in the press, too. I mean, not to, not to drone on about this, but I remember being in New Hampshire and he would point to us. We, you know, we're all standing behind the rope line with our notebooks. And he would say things like, look at them, look at those bloodsuckers. They didn't think I could win. They, you know, they're elitists. They, they doubted me. They, they hate you. And the, the, the crowd would physically turn in our direction and start hissing and booing and, and you know and i realized you know trump trump is taking this incredibly boring stultifying stump speech format and he's turning it into this intimate menacing television event and that i that that was going to fly and it did and that's why everybody just gave him so much attention he, he crushed the ratings and it, it was just a perfect confluence of 
all these factors that made him uh, his his celebrity grow during that time. Well, I don't want us to get fully pulled by the the tractor <laughs> beam that is Trump. I mean, I'm sure he'll come up again. And I think when we talk about, I mean, it's, it's no secret that you and I are uh, about as critical of Trump as as any two people that can be found. But I think in talking about this phenomenon and, and the the underlying politics, I think we should be we should try to bend over backwards to be sympathetic to the millions of people who voted for him. I mean, just to put the best possible steel man construal on the reasons oh, for yeah, that. Oh, yeah, I do. Yeah, definitely. Go ahead. Yeah. I'm sensitive to the, the charge that, at least on this topic in particular, I'm in an echo chamber or amplifying one. And I mean, the truth is, there's, I think there really is truly zero partisanship in my criticism of Trump. I mean, it, I think virtually everyone I've had on this podcast to talk about Trump is a Republican who who is criticizing Trump. And I have very uncharitable things to say about the Clintons as well. So it's there's just a unique problem with him as a person, which is motivating me to rail about him as much as I do. But so let's just back up for a second and talk about how we got here journalistically. Because so a couple of days before this theatrical event in the Oval Office with Kanye West, we have the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change releasing a fairly dire report, which gets perhaps predictably now very little oxygen in the press. And, you know, half of America probably thinks climate change is a hoax. And we have a president who will say that it's a hoax. Journalistically, how did we get to a situation where it is so difficult to define fake news clearly enough to even address the problem? And we're, we're now living in a with an ambient level of conspiracy theories and an unwillingness to engage, you know, in the case of climate change, a, a fairly impressive scientific consensus about the basic problem, and yet journalism can't seem to get a purchase on it. How is this where we are? Well, I think the in that case, it's almost entirely a financial issue. You know, back in the day, maybe uh, during the fairness doctrine years, when there was more attention paid to the to the public interest standard. Uh, and I think, you know, we're, we're raising a whole generation that doesn't know some of the history here that the press originally was sort of a grand bargain, right? The the government would lease the public airwaves to radio and television stations. And uh, as part of the, the sort of negotiation, the private media companies were obligated to create programming that was in the public interest and convenience. And for a long time, there was an un unwritten rule that the news could be a, a loss leader, right? You, that you could make your money on sports and sitcoms and entertainment and whatever else. And, you know, the news didn't have to make money. And that change that began to change, you know, with some very profitable programs, I think 60 Minutes was one of the first news magazine programs to actually make money. and then. Um, in the 80s and 90s, we started to see this phenomenon of uh, of companies like uh, you know like Fox uh, starting to actually make uh, significant amounts of money um, in ways that they didn't have to before because because they were being more overt overtly commercial than they used to, and so this 
it's it's hard for people to understand, but I watch this. The you know journalists just sort of grow up with this idea of what um, what is and what isn't a story. It's something that's more by smell than by discussion. And back in the day, I I think reporters would have placed more emphasis on how how important a story is and in deciding whether or not something is newsworthy. Now we probably are whether consciously or not consciously thinking more about what's going to sell more when we talk about um, what stories we're going to cover, what we're going to pitch to our editors and that sort of thing. And so climate change is just, it's just a tough sell. Um, I'm, I've, I've done a very few stories on that, but I've done stories on topics that are like that, that are, that are difficult sells. And it's really hard to get traction. I think the, the hardest part is you, you might be able to get your own audience interested for a little while, but the hard part is getting everybody else to pick it up. And, and that's, that's really the difficult part is right now, you, you, in order to affect anything, you need the whole news cycle, you need everybody piling on. And that doesn't really happen with that kind of story very, very often. And, and le- unless there are, there are powerful interests behind trying to get something a lot of ink, it just just won't happen. And, and Mother Earth doesn't have that kind of pull, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, well, with climate change, you sort of have every variable working against it because it is a this slow moving problem, which is in each specific instance, something that you can't, at least from a scientific point of view, confidently say is happening as theorized. So you can't say this hurricane is the result of climate change. You can just say that there's this general trend of worsening storms that we would expect, but you can never point to the, you know, the devastation from last week and say, there you go, climate change. Or at least if you do, you'll have the, all the caveats of scientists working in the background to kind of undercut you. So it's a hard problem because to make it journalistically sexy enough, it's certainly tempting to distort the underlying science. And then when scientists or people like Al Gore get caught for doing that, then it sets the whole conversation back. Yeah, it's very, you need a hook, right, to sell any news story. So people are going to look for some kind of event, something historic, maybe water levels rising to a certain degree that had never been reached before, temperatures getting hotter than they ever had before. Um, I used to live in Uzbekistan, and I I remember walking in what used to be the Aral Sea, uh, and it's not there anymore. And so people, people look for hooks like that to do environmental stories, but they're you know, if you're trying to compete against Kanye West giving Trump a hug in the White House, <laughs> that's just not an easy pitch. You know, it's it's just not going to get the same kind of clicks and eyeballs, even from people who claim to be interested in the topic, believe it or not. Um, so, I mean, that's one of the reasons why in my own work, I've I've had to resort to some pretty weird tactics to try to get people interested in, um, you know, things like the financial crisis or, uh, you know, Iraq war, uh, use storytelling techniques, humor, you know, make black hats, white hats, uh, make characters out of the main uh, people who figure in the story. Um, And, you know, you feel not so great about that sometimes, but that's necessary in order to get people eyeballs trained on on uh, important subjects. So it seems that journalism has now essentially monetized domestic political conflict more than anything else. I mean, just like we're, we're and especially when you add the, so I guess there, there are a few rungs on the ladder here, which I know you've, you've written about. I mean, I think the, 
the first is probably conservative talk radio and Fox News and 24-hour cable news cycles, which just demand a kind of endless polarizing conversation about politics. But then when you add the internet and social media and the kind of micro-targeting of groups with you know Facebook ads, and we're now monetizing every individual's confirmation bias and addiction to outrage. I mean, do, you, do you see a way of breaking this spell? What is, what's the, the exit from this? I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm in the middle in that book that I'm, I'm writing, The Fairway, right now. I, I just wrote this thing called The Ten Rules of Hate, um, which are, it's explicitly about how, how we monetize uh, political division, how, how we train audiences to be sort of pre, pre-angry and get them addicted to conflict. I mean, pre-angry. Yeah. Pre-angry is a great phrase. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, I mean, everybody knows that we do it and we, and we know that we do it. Um, and, and it goes back a long way. First of all, I think people have to realize they have to think about the logistical challenge of filling all those hours on 24 hour cable. And when, mm-hmm. w- when crazy. that first happened, the news had a very, very difficult time making all those hours work. Um, you know, what they basically did is they would do a newscast uh, and have it on a loop every hour or so. But that doesn't work in modern day media. You need, you need something new pretty much constantly. And so what, what works and what they found over the years in terms of what works to fill all the hours and what gets people's attention the most, um, it's either a, uh, an ongoing crash kind of a story like you know the the Kursk disaster or a baby down the well or a a storm or something like that where they can update it every minute or it's something like the presidential campaign that has 18 months of scheduled conflicts uh and you can create lots and lots of sort of graphic doodads to talk about the um your predictions and you can um turn it into a a kind of sports format where people argue constantly. But the easiest way to fill all that time is just to do the sort of crossfire format where you have uh, one one person on one side, one person on the other side, and they argue. um, And the the show doesn't really work if they try to reach an accommodation during the show. It has to be conflict, right? I mean, if you think about what crossfire does and and Saturday Night Live was lampooning this way back in the 70s with Point Counterpoint. The idea that people would sort of dress up in shirts and ties and, and scream insults at each other over things that have nothing to do with their lives, with their lives, it's totally crazy. But we do it constantly. And that format works so well as a way to fill the hours that it went from being a variety show that we tuned into occasionally to being the entire news landscape. And we have some channels that are from the left and some channels that are from the right. And they're just lobbing grenades at each other constantly. And the additional factor that you talked about with the internet now means that all of those algorithms are going to be searching for audiences who are already sort of pre-selected to agree with, with certain topics. So when you create a story you know, about how, you know, you just say Trump is awful, the 10, the 10, 101 ways Trump is awful or whatever, right? There's going to be an algorithm that's going to identify all the people um, who are going to like that story or, or are likely to like that story. And it's going to feed it to them through the Facebook feed and through various other social media methods. And so there's all these commercial polls that 
that push us to try to create that kind of content, which is just about feeding people's hate reflexes. And it's really unfortunate because what ends up happening is that people like me who, when we come across a topic that isn't partisan or isn't going to make you angry, but is, you know, if you, if you cover it correctly, it's going to make you maybe think about your own culpability or it's going to make your readers not so pleased with the politicians that they vote for. There's kind of an internal discouragement from doing that kind of material. I mean, I'm sure I've heard you talk about how a certain segment of your audience you know, t- turned out to be Trump supporters. It's difficult, right? Went to to do content that maybe, you know, is going to turn those people off. And that's, I think that's unconscious. That's something that's unconscious and going on at the unconscious level with a lot of reporters these days. It's one of those situations where incentives are more powerful than what most people, at least, can consciously will themselves to do. You can keep your eye on the the public good a fair amount, but if all of your incentives, especially your you know incentives for being able to pay your rent and advance your career, are running the other way. It's not hard to guess what's going to win there, at least for most people. I noticed you were fairly critical of the the New Yorker festival <laughs> beyond there just disinviting Steve Bannon, uh, which we can talk about. I think you and I had a very similar take on that, but you seemed much more critical than than I would tend to be in this environment, just around their their business model. They were somehow prostituting journalism by creating events that people would pay a fair amount of money to attend. But again, one of the main problems from my point of view is we're in a an environment now where virtually everyone expects to get their news right. for free. So if, if the New, if the New Yorker can create a you know a yearly conference that's expensive that people actually want to pay for to see you know their favorite writers or or whoever get up on stage and and talk. Why be skeptical of that project, given the financial exigencies now with journalism just trying to figure out how to stay in business? You're right. I mean, I was probably unfair about that. I I just kind of reacted to that whole thing. Um, <laughs> as somebody who's just sort of been in the business for a long time, it would be tough for me to to do that kind of event. And you know, I don't know. I I I, I just have a sort of an old old school take on that. It's just feels kind of odd to me uh for some reason um but uh but i understand it i mean you know that's it's a it's a way to to make money now and it's a it's proven i guess to be pretty successful and people do want to meet their uh their favorite writers and and pundits and that sort of thing so um i guess it's a, it's analogous to what happens in the or what happened in the music industry where you know musicians can't make nearly as much money actually selling their music so they have to tour and the problem for writers has always been that there is no there's no real analog for touring for most writers i mean some can have careers as speakers but it seems like this new yorker festival which i've never attended so i you know I, i'm just guessing but it, it seems like th- this is a a micro example of a magazine figuring out some touring component to its business model, which you know, not obviously not every magazine can do, but that part seems good to me, provided there's actually a market for it. I, what what really was objectively not good was how they handled the Steve Bannon situation. I don't know if you want to give your. I, I've, I've already spoken about that briefly on the podcast, but I don't know if you want to give me your take on what happened there. Well, I I, I do think that interviewing Steve Bannon is totally a legitimate thing to do. 
And when I first heard about that controversy, I I guess I didn't understand what the New Yorker Festival was. And I, I should probably just back up and say again, I I grew up in with with people who in an era when the salespeople, the ad people were literally not allowed in the same newsroom as the reporters. Like there was a Chinese wall between right. between the press and the business side, and we just didn't have to think about it. And so um, the idea of the festival. It, I, you know, I think from an old school perspective, it just feels a little weird to me. But if you add the the component of we're going to charge uh, an extra special high amount of money to to bring Steve Bannon in so that everybody can uh, gawk at the public spectacle of uh, him on stage. I don't know if that's, you know, that's that's basically monetizing the Trump phenomenon in a way that's that's a little bit too direct for my taste. I, I I mean I understand why they did it. And I and and some of the things that David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, said about, you know, we need to to challenge people who are powerful and you know, all of that is valid. And in fact, one of the things that I you know I wrote about was that, you know, if you've watched the if you read the Michael Wolf book and there's all these amazing questions that I would like to ask somebody like Steve Bannon, like what did he? What was he talking about when he was cheering the nomination of a money laundering prosecutor to the Mueller, the Mueller's team, and also you know about his sort of strategic decisions during the campaign? All that stuff is interesting and it's worth exploring. But in the context of that of that festival, it, it felt like a little bit too commercialized to, for me. I don't know. What, what, what did you think about that? Well, you just brought up two interesting points that are bigger than the festival. One is just the, the general phenomenon of wondering who is worth talking to. This is something I, I've struggled with openly on the podcast. You know, is it okay to, as it's said, give a platform to person X when there's interesting differences of opinion to be aired in, in that conversation? The other thing you brought up is just monetizing the Trump phenomenon in general. Let's just take that piece first. It seems to me that journalism in general must have benefited from Trump, right? I'm wondering if there's a kind of a perverse incentive now that has crept in where this is the best thing that's ever happened to CNN or any of these other outlets. Is that Has anyone quantified just how good Trump has been for journalism? Yes. There, I mean, there have been lots of reports about this. The the numbers are historic. I mean, typically, the networks in the year after a presidential election, the cable networks anyway, see significant drops in ratings. That didn't happen with CNN. CNN, I, mean, I, th- I think in the first year of the Trump presidency, made a billion dollars profit. And th- there was a really interesting phenomenon for me about that, which was poll after poll showed that uh, there was less trust of the media than ever, including on both sides of the spectrum among Republicans and Democrats, but, you know, particularly among conservatives. But we're, the, the media is being consumed more than ever. So what does that mean? I mean, that means that we're starting to eat into the entertainment world's budget, basically, because people aren't really consuming us as a product that they trust. They're consuming us as some other kind of product that serves some other kind of purpose. And that's pretty weird. I mean, all, all the networks have been... Yeah just amazing ratings ever since tr- Trump has been in office. And that that's one of the reasons why um, I have this queasy feeling about a lot, a lot of Trump coverage. It, it's, you know, they originally when he first came on the scene, 
there was a lot of sort of snickering and let's give this this clown um a little airtime to to because we know it's going to get ratings and then when people felt bad about it and they realized that they were helping him get get to the presidency they just they, they sort of started to add this you know instead of a million hours of trump it's a million hours of trump is bad i think it's basically the same thing and and i, I really worry about that i think that's not that's not a positive phenomenon for the for the press because it's, it's just so easy now to make money with Trump Trump uh, content, and that's you know that's that's a bad habit for the press to break. Yeah. So okay. So back to um, the uh, platforming thing. I'd love to talk about that. Ne- yeah. Yeah. Ne- yeah. The ne- nefarious podcast guest or interview guest. When I've described this on my podcast, I- I've talked about it in terms of this uncanny valley phenomenon, where if someone is bad enough, then it's just just a straightforward decision. I guess the clearest case is, I mean, you, you could sit down and talk to Hitler. That would be interesting. But to talk to Richard Spencer is to give a platform to an awful person with his awful ideas. And I, I just wonder how you, I mean, for, again, I, I totally agree with you about Steve Bannon. He's not, he's not Richard Spencer. I think he's, he's unfairly slimed as being that sort of right-wing xenophobe or racist. And he's he's someone who already has a platform and he's already used it to great effect. So he's somebody who has who has made the news, and in in large measure is responsible for who's currently in the Oval Office. So he he seems worth talking to. And the idea that David Remnick could not have performed his side of that interview in a way that would have credibly undercut Bannon's bad ideas, insofar as they are bad. Is just to put so little faith in in Remnick as a journalist, and in just the possibility of shedding sunlight on bad ideas that it, it just it made everyone on the disinvite side of the the ledger look craven. And so I mean it was it was just the worst possible outcome because it Bannon gets to say that he destroyed the left without even showing up. Right. Yeah. I I don't know. I mean, I, the the, the deplatforming movement on campuses is something that I've never covered. I've never had any reason to really look at it but in journalism i don't see that it really has a place because the the standard is just is the person newsworthy or not do, do they have something that we want to know or not uh to talk about and in the case of bannon the, the, you know he it's easily true that he's newsworthy there are a million things that i would want to ask steve bannon and i understand the objections i mean i heard a lot of them when i wrote about this that there's there's nothing you're going to learn from Steve Bannon. He's he's um, a, a racist and a white supremacist, and that's all you need to know. Well, you know, I don't I don't think that's true. I think there Donald Trump would not be president right now if it weren't for Bannon, and his tactics were very successful among other things in conning a whole lot of journalists like myself. And I would love to learn from him um, what his thinking was throughout that process in this you know in the summer of 2016. Uh, I'm sure there are a million things that have happened in the White House that if he were inclined to talk about, I would love to hear about. Um, he's a newsworthy person. You know, Spencer, that's a little bit different because, you know, there's there's no there's there's very little news value in what he's done. I think you're if you're, you know, a big corporate media outlet and you're covering Spencer, you're basically just giving him free advertising. Um, I don't love that, uh, but 
but you're absolutely right. I mean, you, we, we interview all kinds of crazy people and we don't think about whether they're good people or bad people. I've ne- at least I never have. I just, I just think about whether they're, they're newsworthy or not. I mean, would you interview bin Laden? Of course you would. So, yeah. Yeah. uh, I don't, I don't understand. I, I found that whole thing really troubling and I, I worry about it creeping into reporting because if you add the requirement that reporters now have to sanitize the content for audiences and and add all these indicators so that audiences know that this or that idea is bad. Uh, first of all, that's showing a remarkable like uh, lack of an, of confidence in your audience's ability to understand things. Um, and secondly, that's just not what we do. We're we're in the business of sort of finding out what happened um, and understanding things and letting the the world do with that information what it will. Um, we're not. I. I hope we're not in the business of making political judgments about people, you know, in, in, in the same way that, uh, you know, a campus administrator would ha- might have to take into consideration when they're deciding whether or not to invite somebody or something like that. Would you interview Alex Jones? Um, yeah, I probably would. What do you think about, I know you've written about this, but what do you think about the this censorship of him by um, the various social media channels that have censored him? I, I, was it all of them, or would it, is he still on Twitter? I know he was pulled down from from YouTube, and I'm not sure. I I know that he's gone from most of them. How do you view that phenomenon, and and would he be someone? You would certainly get a lot of grief for speaking to him, but what do you think about the the merits of speaking to him? Well, on the on the censorship angle, I thought it was really interesting because I think people didn't understand that moment all that well. Um, we have had in this country for a long time since the early 60s, a way of dealing with bad speech. And, you know, the standard has been New York Times v. Sullivan, right? We, we've decided what's, what's libel, what's slander, um, and the courts sort that out. And it's been a very effective system for preventing people from lying or uh, publishing damaging information. The courts typically react pretty swiftly and that that private system has has um has been a great shield to people like me because when i you know if i want to write about a company like goldman sachs or something like that i i know that i in order for them to successfully sue me that i have to get things wrong that it's going to go to a you know a, a courtroom and not some private executive somewhere to make that decision and so the idea that we're going to switch and now have a new standard where the decision about how we deal with bad speech is going to be dealt with behind closed doors in um, these sort of gigantic transnational companies, and it's not going to be public, and it's going to be, you know, you're not going to really have a say in it if uh, they decide to to remove you from the platform. I really worry about that. I mean, I think, as I said in the in, when I wrote about this, to me, it looks like Jones, you know, falls under the category of somebody who you know, could have been successfully sued on a number of occasions and probably would be out of business in the in the old days. But instead, because he was so, he was so unpopular and, he, and he's so noxious to a lot of people, when when they removed him from all those platforms, everybody cheered. And I thought that was a really dangerous moment because we're sort of formally switching from one enforcement mechanism to another. And this other enforcement mechanism is is kind of scary to me, you know, so. Um, I worry about that a lot, uh, for sure. 
What do you do with the, the argument that these are private platforms? I mean, these are essentially publishers that, by this argument, would be forced to publish ideas that are noxious, false, and damaging. In the, in the case of Jones, you know, damaging to the bereaved parents of murdered children. Is part of the problem here that, that Facebook and YouTube and these other platforms are so big now as to be not best thought of as private companies, but they're essentially public utilities or you know just common space that a person shouldn't be barred from inhabiting? Well, if you just take just the two companies, uh, Facebook and Google, that's where above 70% of America gets their news from. Uh, so these, they're, they're basically like a distribution duopoly. They're absolutely private companies legally. They absolutely have the right to remove anybody they want, uh, for Mm -hmm. violating their terms of service. I'm, I'm not saying that they don't, um, but it's a serious problem because most people get their news through social media platforms. And, um, especially when you have a situation which is developing now where these companies appear to be consulting with quasi-governmental bodies like the Atlantic Council and making decisions about which sites to yank and which ones not to yank. Um, based on that, that's, that's where you start really worrying. Because the, the companies originally had a completely hands-off attitude towards the press. And you know, as recently as a couple of years ago, Zucker, Mark Zuckerberg was saying, that's not what we do. We're not editors. And, and it took something very, very extreme for them to intervene. And now, because of the Russia scandal, because of some other things, there's this new movement to um, you know, sort of demand that these companies start behaving like publishers, which incidentally, they aren't legally. Um, the Communications Decency Act in, in the 90s uh, specifically exempts them from being sued as publishers mm-hmm. so you know the the traditional protections we had against somebody like jones you would you would sue the company that that put him on the air not not the reporter right um that's not the case with these platforms so they're they are publishers but they're not at the same at the same time i, I think it's it's not it's not a healthy situation that they, they haven't really worked it out in a way that's that's satisfactory i don't think mm. i actually want to talk about Russia and a few other things that you just mentioned, but a couple of other news stories. Let's kind of keep on the the news story angle here. So that a few other news stories were huge recently. One is still evolving. The, the um, Jamal Khashoggi it seems almost certain murder at this point. Have you been following this? A little bit, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, I take notice every time a journalist is killed. But of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's such an alarming phenomenon. And again, it's one of those things, the juxtaposition with our current political moment where you have a president who can't say anything useful in the face of this. One, because of his, how he may be just compromised in his own sentiments or financial entanglements with the Saudis, but just, you know, his, the fact that the U.S. can no longer credibly condemn this kind of behavior because we now have a president who glad hands all the strongmen he can speed dial and castigates our democratic allies. It's a crazy situation. We have a journalist tortured, murdered, and dismembered in a consulate, and we have a president who's, who's still agnostic as to whether or not this is going to affect a recent arms deal with the Saudis. 
how do you view how compromised we are politically in being able to do anything useful in the face of this kind of thing? And I, I guess I have a little bit of a different take on it because um, having lived overseas for a long time, uh, I remember being in Russia when we were calling Boris Yeltsin our friend and uh, journalists were routinely getting killed during during that period. And we didn't do anything about that. We changed our tune a little bit when, when Putin came into office, but it took a little while. <laughs> you know, it was, it was sort of after we decided that Putin was not a man with whom we can do business. But the, we support a lot of regimes around the world that, that don't treat journalists well. Uh, and I don't think this is probably the first incident um, with the Saudis where something bad has happened to a reporter. I, you know, I, I don't know that for a fact, but um, I'm going to guess that around the world, a lot of regimes that we've traditionally supported, you know, whether it's Equatorial Guinea or, you know, the UAE or or Russia in the yeah. 90s or whatever it is. Also, the Saudis have ha- had this atheist blogger, Raif Badawi, uh, imprisoned for now years, and we have not applied any pressure on that front. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I can grant you that we have been at best opportunistic in picking the occasions on which we're going to trumpet our human rights concerns. And we've been curiously silent on other occasions, going back many, many decades to before there were even there was even a notion of human rights concerns. As a journalist who has lived overseas, what would be the right approach? Is it just too idealistic and impractical to think that we would have a uniform standard and we would reliably come to the aid of journalists who are put in these kinds of positions? I'm pretty sure that what somebody in even a government like the Barack Obama's government would say if if we asked them about this is that it would be impossible to conduct diplomacy if we completely shut out all regimes that mistreated their journalists. I mean, it's just mm. it's so unbelievably common, uh, except for in a few places on, on Earth that... Um, you know, I, I, I understand the, the sort of selectivity that they've decided to apply to this, this issue. And this goes back a long way, right? Like we, we had friendly relations with Central American regimes where yeah. journalists were routinely assassinated. Yeah, or, or even nuns. Right. Yeah, nuns for that matter. And then me, meanwhile, if, you know, one, one physicist or, a, you know, uh, a journalist is institutionalized in the Soviet Union, it was a front page news story in the New York, New York Times. So. It's tough. I think that's a tough issue. Uh, I'm certainly, you know, having had colleagues of mine who've been attacked and shot, uh, you know, I, I certainly am in favor of the strongest possible protections for journalists. But it's, I, I don't know how much moral authority the United States has on this in this area. Um, it, but we certainly have less now than we probably ever did. That's that's right. I think that's probably safe, safe to say. So, um, yeah, another thing in the news that. I've touched before, I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, but I'd be remiss in not asking you about this because, so the Kavanaugh hearing, you know, I I have put out my take on Kavanaugh and what should have happened there. And one of the things that gets thrown back at me a lot, I mean, so so briefly, I don't know if you've heard it, but basically I think that, you know, whatever you think about what likely happened 36 years ago, I think Kavanaugh did enough in the hearing and how he comported himself and the places where he chose to lie to disqualify himself as a somebody who should have been on the Supreme Court. So 
it's not that you know he should be criminally charged with having attempted rape in the past on the basis of the testimony we heard, but I do take the job interview interpretation of this, and to my eye, he failed the interview. But the thing that got thrown up at me perhaps the most was just how unreliable reporting is on and people's memories are with respect to events like this and how common it might be for women to lie about this sort of thing. And I got hit a lot with the Duke lacrosse case and also the Rolling Stone magazine, you know, false reporting or what, you know, is, is at least in my memory said to be false reporting on a UVA fraternity rape or a rape that didn't happen. And this is just thrown up now routinely as an example of why believe all women or even believe most women or believe most women most of the time is an algorithm that's just going to lead us straight to hell. So, you know, as you as a Rolling Stone writer, I just wanted to get your sense of what happened there and what is the right approach to thinking about this kind of thing? Because it's not that false allegations are never made, but it's also not the case that it is routine for people to lie about these things and for multiple people to lie about these things with respect to the same person. So maybe you can just summarize what happened with Rolling Stone there and how you as a journalist think we should move forward. It's an incredibly difficult issue. Um, I I have heard your take on on Kavanaugh, and I I, I pretty much completely agree with it. I, I uh, going into the hearing, you know, I, I didn't know what to expect, but I, I was I was pretty shocked by his performance. And uh, he's he, as you said, he, he he pretty clearly was dissembling in a couple of areas, and that to me is pretty disqualifying for a judge. I you know I I don't understand how how it isn't. I understand what people are saying about this is a tactic that could be employed over and over again against almost anybody. And there, you know, people these days really hate slippery slope arg- arguments. In fact, it's almost a conversation under on, on online. But the idea that, um, you know, almost everybody has something in their past, and you know, I, I certainly did, uh, but that this could be used to start, you know, some kind of a process against anybody. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think. I think what we learned in in the um, in the UVA case, everybody was very affected by the seeming trueness of the story. I think people were very emotional when they when they heard uh, Jackie's story, and it's it's a very difficult. I, I don't know what the answer is, frankly. I mean, as, remind the listeners because I'm I'm even hazy on what the ground truth is there, what we think the ground truth is there. A woman named Jackie made an allegation of a gang rape at a fraternity, and then the story unraveled. But did it unravel to the point where we think she was lying? Or what What do you think is true? No. No, there was. There were just, I think there were a few. I, I, first of all, I wasn't actually at Rolling Stone during that time period. Um, I was briefly uh, at another job. and uh, But from my understanding, what happened was uh, they... There were certain fact-checking processes that didn't take place with that case um, because they were trying to be particularly sensitive to the needs of of uh, that source. And it wasn't that they had affirmatively discovered that she was lying. It was more they, they put out a statement basically saying that um, something along the lines of, you know, we don't 
we don't know or we 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 don't have absolute confidence in in our reporting um and if i'm mistaken about that uh, please please uh please check but i think that was the case uh it's it's a tough issue i mean i you know as as a reporter um i've always tried to stay away from uh stories where i have to take anybody's word about anything uh and it's not about uh, I've never written about that subject, but um, you know the, the the standard for us for for libel and slander is very high when you're accusing somebody of a crime. So the 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 fear level with that kind of a story is already very very high. And there's an additional factor with this kind of story that I think people don't think about too much. We we pretty r- routinely report on people who've been arrested uh, for crimes in this country, and we never we very often don't go back and talk about the fact that they were pronounced not guilty. The stories uh, often survive online forever. People don't get jobs as a result of this. And this is, you know, this is an epidemic throughout the business, you know, starting at the local level. And I, I don't think that's a good thing. Um, we, we do it because those crime stories sell. This, obviously, this is a very, I'm going very far afield from Brett Kavanaugh here. I'm just talking about yep. the reporting problems that this, this poses. I, I never even thought of that as a problem but yeah i can imagine that's terrible it's a it's a huge problem and we we do it pretty routinely i i i actually had i'm writing about this i mean i i used to have a column where i i wrote about sports crime like athletes who got in trouble and and it was supposed to be funny because a lot of those stories are sort of in a you know in a macabre way kind of kind of funny but then i realized that you know a lot i was not going back later on and checking to see what the disposition of those cases were and you know what happened later and that's totally unfair to these people and that's why i stopped i killed that column but we um if you look at crime reporting across the country that's something we do all the time and i don't think it's healthy so i you know i'm pretty again pretty far afield from kavanaugh mm-hmm. here but the 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 problem you know with the reporting on that case it just you know, I I understand that, and she was very believable to me when when she testified. But as a reporter, I would just I'm, it makes me nervous, you know. Uh, and that's not not limited to this kind of story. It's it's anybody who comes to me with a story that uh, I can't confirm, you know. It's like there's there's a lot of stories like in the the national security sector that are going on right now, where, for instance. You know, there, you might have seen the New York Times do a story about how all the their Russian informants went dark. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was on the front page, I think. Even if your source there is like the head of the F, of the CIA or something like that, like how do you how do you confirm that story? I mean, that's that's stuff that I think that is, has become kind of a problem in our business. That um, that we do a lot of that kind of reporting where we are not a hundred percent sure of what, what it is that we're putting out there and we're relying upon, you know, our fas- fascination with credentials, right? If the person is a cr- mm-hmm. very highly credentialed person, we'll, we'll put it out at the sources, we'll put it out there. But anyway, you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, there's a problem because there, there are many issues where you can't even imagine what the corroborating evidence would be. It would just be, in the best case, multiple testimonies as opposed to just one person's testimony and so and what you're what you're right. correcting for there is just the predictable non-alignment of motives and incentives if you can get 20 different people presumably they're not all saying it for the same reason and the truth will win but if it's just one person that person could have some nefarious purpose 
But yeah, I mean, if you're alone in the room with somebody and they do something and then you come out telling people what they did, there's no, you know, like in the Kavanaugh case, any claim that there needed to be some kind of physical evidence, you know, that was clearly crazy. So it was a very hard thing to absorb. You alluded, as we brought up the Kavanaugh thing, you alluded to your own brush with this problem. I don't know that uh, we certainly don't have to talk about it, but I don't know if you wanted to, I'm happy to. Uh, we, we can. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't love to talk about it, but we certainly can if you want. I mean, it's, it's very, my thing is very different. You know, I mean, I, there was a passage in a book. There was no incident with me. I didn't have an, an accuser or anything like that. Nobody was saying that I ever did anything. There was a, a passage that my former co-editor wrote in, in a book that was, you know, pretty grotesque and claim, claimed that we were sexually harassing employees, but it's, it's not true. And when reporters asked the people in question whether it was, they, they found out that that was the case. And, um, but, you know, there's, there's still an issue about some, some obnoxious things I wrote when I was very young. And, um, and I've had to own up to that. And that's, that's tough. But this is a work of fiction, or this is just obnoxious things you wrote early on, which you now disavow that were nonfiction? In my case, it was, it was nonfiction. I mean, I, the, the things that, that people are upset about with me are that I use some very, very nasty uh, descriptive language to write about a female reporter when I was in Russia. You know, the, the, the newspaper that we had, The Exile, was a little bit like a very obscene version of Charlie Hebdo. Mm -hmm. We were trying to be completely uh, offensive to every kind of convention. Um, and the the inspiration for it was the story that I read once when about a guy who walked backwards from I think it was Los Angeles to Turkey like he he went he went by all the way to New York got in a steamer and then went went across seriously Europe. what Jesus it, it was but it was interesting yeah. I mean, the, the 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 exiles whole idea was to be like a an upside down newspaper and it was supposed to be violative of every convention that we had in the media and. You know, we were, it, it, was, it was offensive. The, you know, a lot of the humor was inspired by people like Bill Hicks and Sam, Sam Kennison and that sort of thing. So it was, it was gross college humor, basically. And I'm not proud of it. And that's, that's, but that's part of what being a writer is all about is that you, you write terrible things and you learn not to as you, as you get older. So yeah, it hasn't been fun, but that's, that's part of the process. I mean, fiction writers have more of a license to write terrible things and get away with it under the ages of, it being fiction, but I almost feel like we're living in an environment now where, you know, someone like Philip Roth couldn't have his career because the fictional characters he's creating would be susceptible to the same kind of attack, and the attack would actually find its mark with the author. Right. Yeah, that's probably true. There's probably a lot of writers that, that, that couldn't function today that would be considered far too offensive. I, I know people have a completely different view of a book like Lolita mm -hmm. now than they did, you know, when I was growing up. I mean, I, when I read that book, I thought it was, you know, a nearly perfect work of art, right? And now when you talk about that book with, with people of this generation, they have a completely different viewpoint of it. People, writers like Jean Genet, you know, there, there's, there's all kinds of, of stuff that, you know, there's, it's just, a, it's a different time and the audience is different and they have different sensitivities. And that's, that's also part of being a writer is having, is, is 
learning what's going on with your audience and staying in touch with that and and trying to feel uh, what what is and isn't appropriate um you know for for the current mm-hmm. day so that, i think it's gone back and forth over the you know over the centuries but we're in a place now where people have pretty exacting standards about that stuff well so i definitely want to touch the financial crash stuff because it's you know we we just hit the 10th anniversary that was another big news story in the last week that didn't get a lot of play and i know you have a lot to say on that i guess before we talk about that specifically there two political journalistic things I want to touch. I, I know you've been very skeptical of there being a center to our politics that can be made sexy enough to get any kind of, become a kind of a center of political gravity for us. Why are you so skeptical of the center? Because I'm, you know, at least naively, as a reluctant consumer of politics and contributor to political discussion, I have been thinking that what we need is to somehow empower the center, right? That both extremes, left and right, are so dysfunctional and toxic and so incapable, it would seem, of rational conversation that the center is the only place where people of goodwill who will allow for a conversation constrained by some principle of charity and acknowledgement of basic facts, it's the only place that where they can have a conversation about anything. Why am I wrong about that? My question is like, what what are we defining as the center? Is the center the Hillary Clinton campaign? I mean, and that people people define centrism in mm. different ways. Is is it the sort of economic consensus in the NAFTA age? Is is that what we're talking about? The kind of neoliberal economics. I mean, I I don't know exactly what the center is. Uh, I think it means different things to different people. I absolutely agree with you that that the extremes of left and right are um, are being empowered in the current media environment, and that's not necessarily a positive thing. But um, but I don't really look at the political spectrum that way. I I don't think of it as left and right. I think of you know of politics as being you know in reality a lot it, it could include lots of different ideas you know from you know paul goodman version style you know revolutionary passivism to you know mark twain sort of pox on both houses kind of skepticism about everything and i i just don't like the fact that when you pick up the new york times or any major uh editorial newspaper in this country you really only see two two versions of reality represented. There's the conservative and there's the quote-unquote left or the, the democratic perspective. And there's just so much more life than that. I, there's, there's more than two ideas in the world. I wish we could see, you know, lots and lots of different perspectives and people who agree with each other, disagree with each other, but we don't see that. We've commoditized the landscape into, into you know, one or the other. and I really dislike that. I wish I wish it, it was some other way. That's all. I guess for me, the center is defined by a lack of partisanship, almost by definition. And, and the, the tribalism gets taken out of it. The identity politics gets taken out of it. You're among the people who want to reason honestly about ideas and world events. And your view on any one thing isn't reliably predicted by your view on some unrelated thing that is 
shows almost perfect correlation once you get to the extremes of the political spectrum. So if, I mean, it, it should strike everyone as quite strange that if I know your view on climate change, you know, I can pretty reliably predict your view on gun control, right? You know, in the middle, in the center, that should break down, right? You could have a novel position on gun control and a position on climate change that would not align with, you know, either of the political polls. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And and um, I think we're in this really dark place where the kind of two brands of politics that we sell and that we market in the in the press are utterly predictable, and they've become basically collections of orthodoxies, uh, where if you believe one thing, you have to believe all, you know X, Y, Z, and all these other things. Uh, there's very, very little room for people who have differing kinds of opinions, right? They they basically have to support one side or the other, or else they they can't really exist in this media landscape. You're one of the few people, obviously, who who sort of breaks that mold. But for most people who are in media, they're either in blue state media or red state media. And I, I hate that. I, I, I really wish it was different. I really wish that you could pick up the, a newspaper and see somebody who just didn't like politics and never wrote about it, you know, and had something else to say about things. But that's not the way it is. And, I, and so I, I see what you're getting at. I, I do agree. I just think we're defining the center different, differently. That's all. Do you see any, to talk about normal politics for a second, do you see any plausible Democratic presidential candidates at this point? Now that you're entering campaign coverage in the next week, yeah, I, um, over the years I've learned to not predict too much, but not even a prediction. Can you? I mean, can you think of anyone who you would want to run who would stand a chance of winning and seems like a plausible president? Well, you know, the people who I've heard who are going to run are. I mean, I, I have. I have a kind of a relationship with Bernie Sanders, so I shouldn't I shouldn't uh, comment too much on him. I you know I've done stories with him in the past, and you know he and I get along very well. Uh, uh, but if he runs, that that's going to be interesting. Um, I think there's going to be a very very bitter fight on the Democratic side, uh, almost no matter what happens. I'm a little bit concerned that they're going to do the same thing the Republicans did in 2016. And have way too many candidates, uh, and that kind of clown car approach. Because I'm, I'm here. What I'm hearing is that everybody's going to go in. The number of candidates could swell to 12 to 15 at the start of of this, um, and it could include all kinds of uh, people uh, who will take votes from each other for sure. Some of them are are people that I can't say that I'm particularly huge fans of, like Eric Holder. Uh, I wrote a lot about his performance uh, enforcing. The financial crisis, and um, I'm a little worried that that you know he might be the the, the candidate. But uh, you know Elizabeth Warren's going to run. If the last election is any guide, this is going to be an extraordinarily spectacularly ugly process. And especially if Trump doesn't have a primary opponent and can just sit there every single day making fun of the Democrats on the stump. Then it's going to be like the the reality show to end all reality shows. It's going to be it's going to be like mystery science theater with Trump as the commentator, and just imagine how insane and crazy that's going to be. It's it's going to be a mess. Possible to just have yourself cryogenically preserved for the next two years, and then just wake up with it <laughs> all being over. Yeah, there yeah. was a South Park episode like that, right? 
occasionally I'll wake up in the morning and realize that that I'm going to have to go back out there soon. And I have that like moment of panic that, you know, when, when you wake up to remember a horrible thing yeah, in life. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, oh, man. that's, uh, I have that pr- pretty often nowadays. All right. So before we hit the financial crisis, I went out on Twitter and asked, I said that you and I would be speaking and I asked for topics and I gleaned from that deluge that you may have a different sense of the Russia investigation than I do by default. You sound like you might be more skeptical about there being a there there with Russian meddling in our election or Trump's entanglement with Russia. What are your thoughts on that topic? So my my take on this has been almost entirely about the reporting from the beginning. And uh, the first thing that really bothered me about this was there, there's a huge question, and I, and I remember listening to your talk with Ann Applebaum about this. There's, a, there's a, an open question over whether we're talking about Russia meddling in our elections or whether we're talking about Russia doing it with Trump's cooperation. Mm-hmm. And those stories seem to be orders of magnitude um, different to me. I don't understand. It, it, from the beginning, I was very troubled by the kind of commingling of those narratives. I understand that Donald Trump refusing to admit uh, that the Russians, you know, were, may, may have been involved with the, the WikiLeaks leak. And, you know, I, I, I said in my first couple of columns about this that it sure, it sure looked like they were. Uh, I, you know, having lived over there, I had no reason to, to doubt that, the, that this was going on. That's part of Russia's MO in some ways. But that's a different story from, from Trump being involved. And I've been a little bit worried about about the reporting on that side of it, because the story with the Steele dossier, for instance, having covered Wall Street for a long time, that reminded me of a, a lot of kind of short selling schemes where uh, a short seller will, will take a position in a stock, uh, hire a, a, a private research firm to do a negative report about a a company, and it could be a bad company. It could be somebody like Enron, or it could be a company that just has some bad, you know, fundamentals. Um, then what they will do is they will take that report and try to sell it to an FBI agent or somebody in the SEC. And then as soon as the the person, the government official, takes possession of the report, you leak it to a friendly reporter that they've got the report. And then there's a story about how X companies under investigation, the stock tanks and everybody cashes out and goes home. The reason I'm familiar with that is because some of the people who are on the Judiciary Committee uh, who are investigating the Steele report were investigating similar episodes that I covered a long time ago involving the financial sector. And so I was, I was very troubled by the early Steele report stories where the the substance of the reports were, it wasn't that we had confirmed anything that was in the reports. It was, we're, we're writing about the journey of this report from one set of hands to another. And that is a very tricky kind of uh, story. It's, it's kind of a trick that, you'll, that you see in the press. Um, I don't love that. There are parallels to stories like the Menendez story, where an investigation starts in one place and ends up in another place. Um, Bob Menendez, I mean. Uh, so I, I just don't. There's, there's been a lot of reporting where it's unnamed sources talking about things that they can't confirm, and that's 
putting everybody over their skis a little bit. Um, and that that part I just worry about. And, you know, we, it's still an open question as to whether or not Trump was actually involved uh, in a significant way. And that doesn't mean I, I disbelieve that it that it's possible. It just means that I, uh, as a reporter, I'd be really, really nervous about reporting mm-hmm. it. Does that make sense? Yeah. I remain agnostic as to what the details are there with respect to collusion. I mean, I think there's an extraordinary number of people in his immediate vicinity who had an, a lot of dealings with, with Russians. And so that just seems strange. But I actually don't know how common or uncommon that is in any presidential campaign. The thing that has always bothered me is just how Trump never had a bad word to say about Putin. And there's enough evidence of his financial entanglement with Russia going back many years and his aspirations to build in Russia that it seemed like Trump as grifter, selfish businessman could be seen operating in the background in a way that the Mueller investigation may also shed light on. But it's just the fact that we have someone whose business interests are so, on one level, just obviously at odds with the interests of our country, but two, you know, as a matter of details, opaque because he, you know, he's managed to conceal his tax returns and many other things. It just seems like we have somebody who's compromised in what he will say or even think about, you know, major world problems because of how entangled he is with his selfish business concerns. Two really quick things about that. Um, I understand what you're saying. The couple of quick points I would make would be he he ran openly on liking Putin and on uh, better relations with Russia. So it wasn't like he was concealing. No, 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 he wasn't. He he this was part of his platform. He talked about it more or less constantly on on the campaign trail. And a phenomenon that you've talked about a lot, which is the fact that so many of his supporters admire Vladimir Putin, um, you know, I I don't agree with it. I understand where it's coming from, though, because it's completely in sync with his message about everything else. He Trump's entire stump presentation is about the modern economic consensus is corrupted. Um, I am going to go clear out the corrupted elites. I'm a strong man. Uh, this is exactly the same message that I saw from Putin when he was sort of put into power um, at the end of the Yeltsin, administra- Yeltsin administration. And Putin had a, a huge amount of popularity in Russia because the um, the sort of, you know, at the time, you have to understand that in, in Russia, there's this constant dialectic and this battle between westernizing and and being a, a russophile and there's you know yeltsin was seen as um a, somebody who was trying to reach out to the west who was taken advantage of uh and whose buddies were taking the riches of the country out out of russia putin was seen as the person who um was more pro-russian who kicked out the americans um, and uh, eliminated us from the circle of power, the sort of pro-American politicians like Anatoly Chubias and Yegor Gaidar were no longer in the Kremlin once he, he came around. 
and so this whether you think it's legitimate or not this this uh idea of rebelling against the neoliberal consensus is something that those two politicians very much have in common and the fact that that putin um you know is is a monster who murders journalists and has you know been a thief and all those things um trump's to trump's supporters i I think that's very untroubling because of his other qualities uh so um i you know i for for trump to have that public view of putin is maybe less surprising to me than it is to some other people uh and another really quick point i'll make is that Trump obviously has been interested in getting Russians to invest in um, his pro- his businesses, but to the pe- kind of people who are rich in modern day Russia, Donald Trump is not considered a person with money. He's considered a, a basically a poor American who had his hand out uh, and who came to Moscow trying to get somebody to pony up some cash uh, for one of his hotels. That kind of a person would have utility maybe as as a money launderer. But not. Uh, I I doubt they would think of him as a big time operator. He was never successful in getting a hotel over there and, and penetrating. At least when I was there, and, and in you know in the years afterwards, uh, he was he was not considered on anybody's radar that I know of. So that's that's one of the reasons why a lot of other Russia reporters that I am still in touch with um, are a little bit skeptical about this story. But now he's president. What do you think his business life? looks like now or the business lives of his family who's running his business i have no idea i mean i've seen lots of reports to suggest that he's trying to commingle those interests as much as possible that would not surprise me at all there's there's nothing about donald trump that would surprise me i mean his i think he as you saw from that expose in the new york times a couple of weeks ago about his taxes yeah his his entire political act is a grift, right? And uh, there's nothing morally that he could do that would be shocking to me. So I would assume that he would try to monetize being president as much as possible. But whether or not that's being done in connection with with the Russians is something that I guess my problem is that I just haven't seen it laid out in a way that's concrete enough to be 100% confident in reporting. That's all. Yeah, well, you know, again, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the Mueller investigation. That'll be a moment where a lot of minds will change or not. Well, I expect him to come out in the next couple of weeks, don't you, with something? I have no, what actually is the timeline? I have no expectations. Is there a, any acknowledgement of what the timeline is or should be? I just sort of half expected something to come out before the elections. Um Aren't we too close to the elections now? To we could be, but I mean, America has such a short attention right. span. They may—I don't know. Yeah. I mean, uh, if I were them, I would—I would do it. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But I'm—I'm uh, I'm assuming that there is at least one more big shoe to drop mm-hmm. there, and uh, and I, and I've heard a few things in that in that regard, um, but I, don't, I have no idea what it will be. That's not something we've talked about yet. Maybe we'll just spend a minute on it, but. It does feel like our attention span has shortened to the vanishing point. And I, I think the place where I noticed this most clearly was in response to the Vegas shooting, which, you know, as it remains more or less un- understood and 
now more or less forgotten, but it's you know the biggest shooting in American history. And I think it was not more than 48 hours later that had just vanished down the memory hole and we were on to something else. How do you view our attention span now in journalism? It just, just non-existent. It's yeah. an illusion that it has sped up, but I'm like, I can't imagine, you know, 10 years ago, the Vegas shooting having disappeared that quickly. No. I mean, I think most people would struggle to even remember that it happened, <laughs> you know, or they'd have to be, they'd have to be reminded. Part of that is probably because of the sheer quantity of media that we consume now. I mean, like back in the 80s, most people watched at most one or two newscasts a day, or they read a couple of pages of the newspaper. Today, they're constantly looking at their phones, and um, it's very easy to forget what you even read two or three hours ago if you're checking Twitter mm -hmm. constantly enough. Uh, you know, I've, I've definitely found that, like, if I do a big feature, Five or six years ago, it would stay alive uh, in on the internet for a couple of weeks. You know, it would have a, this sort of life cycle. And now, you know, it's at best a day or two. And um, yeah, I w if you look at it, what happened with that New York Times expose, which was yeah, it was something like forty thousand words. It was like a novel length expose. It was a massive, massive inv investigation, and it was really well done. And it was not in the news a day and a half later, yeah. you know, and that that's unheard of. I mean, it's it's so difficult now for reporters to have an impact on anything. And I, I think you're absolutely right. I, and that's I don't know how to how you fix that either. That's a tough, mm. tough question. OK, so let's talk about the financial crash, because this was one of your big stories. When did you write your first article on this? Probably early 2009. So they, they assigned this to me right right as the uh, Obama-McCain race was wrapping up. So I, I wrote one piece about the AIG bailout, and that was all that, was, that we were supposed to do. But I think the, the fact that I had no financial background and I had to start from scratch, and um, you know, I, I remember I had a, a source who remained a very close source of mine, of sort of a Wall Street trader, who said to me early on, your problem is that you're looking at this as an economic story, and that's going to be hard. If you, if you Once you understand that it's a crime story, it'll all become easy mm -hmm. for you. And, uh, and that's really what I did. I, you know, I, I had to learn how the mortgage fraud worked and how securitization worked and all those things. And the fact that I had to learn it all from scratch meant that I had to explain it all to my readers from scratch. And that had really never been done before. As, as we learned, the process of sort of translating how the modern financial services sector worked um, had really not been done, you know, uh, for ordinary, for regular people. So we had a, a lot of demand to just keep doing those stories. And I ended up doing it for eight years as, right. a, as a result of that. So uh, it was, uh, it was a really interesting wild, wild time. And, and, it, and it, that's a great example of a story that, you know, people barely remember that that happened, and it was such a colossal event in our lives, and it's uh, it's uh, it's mm. just crazy. So, you know, so what do people most frequently misunderstand about what happened, insofar as they even remember that something happened? What happened, and what do people erroneously believe about it? Well, I think most most people um, have a difficult time understanding how the mortgage business works. So, there were a lot of news outlets that that push simplified explanations like 
the government was forcing the banks to lend. Um, it wasn't like that at all. Actually, what, what was happening was the you know the banks were lending billions of dollars to these fly-by-night companies like Countrywide, which were pouring into lower and middle-income neighborhoods and just giving out loans to everybody with a pulse. And the banks were buying back those loans and chopping them up and kind of making them into securities. Uh, and they were using this, this sort of new form of derivative math that allowed them to disguise the quality of those loans. So basically what they were doing is they were, it was a fraud scheme. It was, it was like selling oregano as weed, basically. They were, they were taking something that was really cheap and plentiful, which was you know, debt issued to poor people who didn't have any real income. And they were chopping it up and, and repackaging it as AAA rated securities to like institutional customers like insurance companies and hedge funds and that sort of thing. And so the, I think that's what people don't understand. They don't understand. They, they think that somebody forced these banks to go out and lend to people who couldn't afford their homes. Actually, it was that there was this horrible incentive for them to create as many loans as they could. Uh, and when they ran out of actual people to lend to, they started creating new forms of like synthetic uh, debt packages that were really just sort of bets on mortgages. And that's how you created this gigantic suck hole of losses when 2008 happened because there were just so there were so many people who had uh, bets riding on each individual mortgage that when they started to fail, it just created this sort of supernova of losses. But what did people think was going to happen when people were unable to pay these mortgages? I mean, if you're writing the highest risk mortgages possible and you're doing that more or less endlessly, and then obscuring the fact that you're doing that by chopping them up, someone had to know how risky this all was. You would think someone would want to avoid the cliff that they're hurtling toward. Well, there were a couple of things going on. One is that there was a widespread belief that home, home values had kind of untethered themselves from reality. It was similar to what happened with uh, the tech boom in the 90s. Remember when Alan Greenspan said, we have a new paradigm and uh, you know, our sort of classic ideas about value aren't true anymore. And that happened with mortgages. There were a lot of people in the, in the industry who talked themselves into this belief system that the market was going to continually escalate and that if those losses hit, it was not going to be in the near future. And so there were other people who did recognize that this was a house of cards and tried to get out as quick, um, and that's basically what triggered this, the the crash there were companies like like Goldman Sachs and I'm sure you've heard about the big short and the testimony on on the hill once the senior people at, at Goldman Sachs saw what was going on they started saying things like we've got to get rid of these cats and dogs that's that's what they're talking about their mortgage holdings we've got to get closer to closer to zero closer to even like they were they they were too leveraged up on the, uh, you know, on betting on mortgages. And so a couple of companies um, were trying to get out. And then there were other companies that were trying to time the market so that they were, you know, they were basically what, doing what was called warehousing these loans. They were like holding them, trying to steal a little bit of value before they, they passed them off onto some other sucker. 
And those companies are the ones that got killed the, the, the worst, like Bear Stearns and, and the Lehman Brothers. So I, I think most of the street understood that, that these, this was not going to go on forever. But the problem is the incentive system there is totally perverse. And you could get your bonuses, um, whether or not those loans failed ultimately or not. So I think that was a, that was a major effect. Well, the amazing thing is that people got their bonuses even when the whole thing came crashing down and firms had to be bailed out with billions of dollars. They, these firms still paid astonishing bonuses to their top people. I mean, the, the worst example was AIG. There was a little tiny unit of AIG that wasn't, AIG is mostly an insurance company, right? So, but they had a little tiny London-based unit called AIG Financial Products that was essentially Wall Street's bookie. Like if you wanted to bet against mortgages, they were the ones that were taking action for you. And they had taken like $500 million in bets uh, without any collateral to back it up. And so uh, that little tiny unit basically helped explode the universe. But when AIG got bailed out, the taxpayers ended up paying $450 million in bonuses just to that little unit. And (laughs) I think that was that was one of the worst episodes of the entire crash for me anyway, that like the very people who were the most irresponsible and most, most um, you know, had the most culpability for what happened were the ones who, who, who got rescued by the taxpayer. Okay, so where's the line here between just basic stupidity and selfishness and bad incentives and moral hazard and actual crime? So the criminality came mostly in one place. What what happened was, uh, well, first of all, there was criminality at the loan level where companies like Countrywide would falsify incomes or would give loans out to people who didn't really qualify for them. So they were creating huge masses of loans for people who really shouldn't have been getting loans. That was one thing. But the the worst thing was that when those loans ended up in the hands of big investment banks, the investment banks represented to their customers who were buying those securities that they had checked everybody's incomes, uh, that they had verified that the people existed, had citizenship, had jobs, and they hadn't done that work in many cases. Um, and that's clear criminal fraud. And that's why virtually all the big banks paid multi-billion dollar settlements because they had all done a version of that on some level. I mean, I did a, a couple of stories involving J.P. Morgan Chase, and and there were uh, you know billion dollar settlements about about this stuff, and um, nobody went to jail for it. And I, it, the, the the contrast is is there with like the savings and loan crisis, where we put eight hundred people in jail probably after that, and there was really only one or two cases even involving uh, senior level executives, and no, and nobody ended up being punished for 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 that so that that definitely was crime mm. has there literally not been one person who's gone to jail over what happened over that stuff i mean there there were there was like a rico case involving a like a an african-american gang in san diego uh that was you know engaged in some kind of mor- mortgage hustle there was a prosecution of a couple of bankers at uh, at Bear Stearns, who were involved in a hedge fund controlled by Bear Stearns, but the the government didn't win that case, and that was a that was a big deal. That was a big reason that they didn't go after more people. They felt they didn't 
they couldn't get uh, convictions. There were a couple of plea deals involving some other offenses like money laundering that went on afterwards. But the, 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 the basic crime of the, the subprime mortgage fraud, which was epidemic during this time period, there was really no, there were there were no big cases involving that, and there there easily could have been, and at that and the foreclosure fraud, um, the robo signing, you know, there no nobody paid criminally for that. I mean, I, I I covered cases that were worse than that. I mean, the the HSBC case, you know, the bank admitted to laundering eight hundred and fifty million dollars for a couple of Central and South American drug cartels, and um and the their punishment was they had a couple of executives had to partially defer their bonuses for a few years. <laughs> so, but just to be clear, this is they admitted to having inadvertently laundered drug money or consciously laundered drug money. Con- consciously, the well, the the subsidiary was it was the Mexican subsidiary, but they you know in, in the agreement. They talked about how the banks were, had actually built special te- teller windows so that the drug gangs could shove boxes of cash through them more expeditiously. <laughs> so the, the bank was highly, highly complicit in working with people like the Sinaloa drug cartel in Mexico. And, you know, I talked to some people in the Justice Department about this later, and they said, and, you know, in the old days, here's how we, we, we would have gone to a company like this and just said, you have a week to tell us the 20 people most responsible for this um, or else we're going to you know, yank your charter and put you out of business. And that's what they didn't do in this case. You know, and, and, you know, that's, that's as bad as banking behavior gets and nobody did a day. Nobody, and nobody paid a dime out of their own pocket either. Um, it was all shareholder money. So it's crazy. All right. So how perfectly have we fixed the system in the meantime? <laughs> that's that's a funny question. We haven't, you know. I I have I get this question all the time. Like, when's the next crash coming? I have no idea. But I do I do have people um, calling me up and talking to me all the time about how, you know, the basic problem that happened in the crash era was well, there were a couple of things. One was that the companies were too big and we couldn't let them go out of business when they screwed up. Uh, and the other one was that this mechanism of turning bad loans into into high-rated securities, that still goes on. And that happens with aircraft loans and credit card loans and, and um, small commercial loans. So there could be bubbles in any one of those sectors. And you know, I, I periodically hear about things being too overheated here or there. So they haven't really fixed a whole lot. And in fact, the, the big thing that they didn't do, you know, the too big to fail issue, they made it considerably worse by merging the biggest companies with a lot of the failed companies. So like Chase is bigger now because it's got Washington Mutual and Bear Stearns in it. Bank of America is bigger because it's got Countrywide and Merrill Lynch. And so it's, there's way more danger than there was even in 2008. Mm. All right. Well. Your job is secure, I would, I would imagine. <laughs> Let's hope. Yeah, absolutely. How concerned are you about wealth inequality now? I guess this dovetails with everything we've been saying about politics. Wealth inequality is a topic that gets a kind of hand-waving response by many people, but you don't actually see it being focused on very often. We have to talk about what we mean by wealth inequality, because there's a good news story in the background here, which is different from 
the story with respect to our domestic politics. It is a fact globally that we're living in the most prosperous time in human history, and there's less wealth inequality globally speaking. I think that's true to say, but within individual countries like the United States, there's more wealth inequality, and just an incredible disproportion of gains are going to the wealthiest among us in any kind of recovery. One, do I have my facts straight there? But two, what was your sense of the current moment? I started to notice two campaigns ago, maybe, uh, in the McCain-Obama race, that there was this edge to the people in the crowds on on both sides, really. People were, were really, really angry about a couple of things. They, their lack of job security, the fact that most people are one medical emergency away from being bankrupt, having, you know, I, I was at a Trump rally last last time, and I got a, you know, somebody was giving me a tirade about, did you see the 65-year-old guy at the, you know, working the McDonald's down the street, you know, no, our retirement incomes are gone because of the crash, you know, like, there's a lot of anger out there. I don't know how coherent it all is, like, people have some pretty crazy ideas about why the there's so much inequality and I, I was very shocked to run into a lot of people uh, like in Trump rallies who'd, who'd, who'd read my articles and about Wall Street and were just had some sort of very general ideas that they'd been ripped off. I think that that question had just hasn't been addressed very well by the American political consensus. I mean, I think you saw this tremendous outpouring of anger in the last election towards Republicans and, the, uh, and mainstream Democrats. And um, I'm not sure that problem has been fixed uh, going into the next election cycle. I, I worry about that. I don't know about you, but I, I, um, I think they spent a lot of time in the last two years talking about Trump and everything that's wrong with him. But I haven't heard as much talk about like how we're going to fix that problem, you know, and I think that's still a it's a massive dynamic in American politics still. Yeah, I also worry there's a real asymmetry with respect to the political cost of being sullied by the system. So I just remember, you know, as a, as a comparing, you know, what happened to Clinton and what didn't happen to Trump, just the amount of grief she got over her Goldman Sachs speeches, you know, the fact that she'd given a bunch of high-priced speeches to Goldman Sachs that was just flagged as a politically suicidal disclosure, whereas, you know, Trump can run as a self-made man, and then when we find out his family gave him $400 million, it has exactly no effect on his supporters. And, you know, there could be a hundred things like that that would come out about Trump, and yet he can still credibly trumpet his solidarity with the little guy. I feel like Left and right, or you know, Democrats and Republicans have a very different physics of how someone's standing can erode. Trump is a unique character in this regard, where it's true to say, as he said, that he could you know literally shoot someone in Times Square and not lose any support. Whereas the left eats its own for many reasons in a way that the right doesn't. But you know, with respect to kind of invidious economic cohabitation with, you know, rich, famous celebrity types where all the money is, where you're trying to fund your campaign, there's enough that's unseemly about our system that the left will get penalized for in, in a way that the right won't. 
I'm worried that it'll be a very big variable in the next election cycle and, and that it will be one that the Democrats, you know, even in the case of the best intentions, don't weather very well. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I don't think they, I don't think they get the level of anger towards really all institutions, but especially Wall Street companies. Trump sold himself as a traitor to his class. You know, he basically said he was coming down from the Olympus and nobody knows the system better than me. That's why I alone can fix it. You know, basically what he was saying is that whereas with other politicians like Jeb Bush, and he would constantly do things like point out that Jeb Bush had Woody Johnson in the audience, you know, the, the pharma giant as his campaign finance chairman. And he would talk about Hillary with her Wall Street connections, Ted Cruz with her, his Goldman Sachs connections. And these, the, that really resonated with voters, whereas Trump said, you know, those politicians are puppets for big money, and I am the big money, you know? So, right. But then he immediately staffed his cabinet with Goldman Sachs people and paid no political price for it. Of course. Of course. I mean, it was just, there's no... It, it, it's very hard to account for. There's no consequence to hypocrisy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, that dynamic is very real, though. I mean, he he presents himself as as like the friend of the common man. I, I and it it works. I I don't know how, but it it, it, mm. it does. So um, I think people underestimate him. He's he's so crazy and so and so clearly doesn't have it together in his head, and he's so narcissistic. Uh, but his instincts for how to connect with crowds are are very sound, you know. And I, I totally underestimated him last time. Uh, I I didn't think he would do as well in the general as he did, and he's just very good at manipulating that that exactly that kind of theme. All right. Well, don't make that mistake this time. <laughs> I won't. I won't. <laughs> okay. Well, Matt, really, it's been a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. I'm glad we finally connected. Sam, thank you so much for having me on, and um, hope hope we get to meet in person someday. Yeah, we'll do it. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website. That's samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You also get access to advanced tickets to my live events as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.